This is a, a Room of Requirement, episode 8, a podcast dedicated to soul care and resistance in the time of Trump. I'm, I'm Miracle Jones. And I am Kamala Rao, and we are your co-hosts. Yeah, we are not qualified to be talking about anything. <laughs> so, first of all, uh, in this podcast, we'd like to start off with talking about how we're taking care of ourselves, how we're recovering. Um, how we're getting better in the time of Trump? Yeah. Lord knows we all feel a little bit under assault. Uh, how about you, man? You just got back from North Carolina. Yeah, I went, uh, so it was an interesting time. Uh, I went to North Carolina, um, uh, for a family medical emergency, so, uh, had to fly down there with my wife, uh, someone very close to had surgery. Everything went much better than expected. Um, so we're happy about that, but it certainly was like kind of a draining experience. So if you have anyone who is a serious medical condition, like even if you as support staff, you end up being drained. So oh, for sure. Yeah. So I was there to back up my sister who, and then like my wife was there to back up me. And then I was like, at the end of the four or five days we were there, we were pretty drained. So yeah, it's a, as always, I've mentioned this in the podcast, when I go back to North Carolina, it's hard to, like, establish a routine of exercise and eating well. Um, so, yeah, our routine was thrown off. So I feel a little less healthy and a little more tired. You said, you said you never successfully got a pulled pork sandwich as well. I know. That's that's the real disappointment. So if I'm not eating healthy and I can't exercise, at least I could get a, a pulled pork sandwich when I'm home. Unfortunately, I was denied. Uh, both times I went to two different restaurants. Durham is becoming this burgeoning food scene where people like me have to wait in line and still get denied because they've run out of supplies. How you been, man? Uh, I'm okay. Uh, it's been it's been a weird week or so. I've gotten some like fights, I guess. Over politics or over, over politics? Uh, okay. Yeah, two really weird ones with like acquaintances, mm-hmm. but. One in which I was told that I was not violent enough or not, like... Uh, I often say that about you. <laughs> you're, you're not violent enough. Yeah. <laughs> because I was kind of unwilling to go punch Nazis. I instead suggested that we challenge a group of Nazis to play Axis and Allies. Yeah. Which I think I would really enjoy that. Right. <laughs> you know, like, it's not a not an easy game. Sure, there's sure. luck involved, but there's sure. definitely strategy. Right. I think we could win. Right, right, right. Prove, you know, a point. <laughs> uh, and this was, this was not a well-liked position at the time. But then simultaneously, like a week later, I was castigated for being too violent because I... I guess I, I'm a fan, or sort of a fan, of Hillary Clinton's foreign policy. I preferred it to Trump. Sure. And there's a contingent on the left that feels that Hillary Clinton would have led us into World War Three. Sure. The, um, uh, and, and now we're safe. And now we're safe. And now we're safe. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I, I, you know, I, I guess I've just been struggling with the what what is the appropriate level of violence to be in today's society let me so let me ask you this yeah what is the appropriate level for you to interact with people on a political floor? <laughs> so, i talked a lot about politics when i when at home and yeah. so again north carolina at least uh, some of the people i was with are, are pretty strong trump supporters yeah, i ended up not sure. i didn't end up talking about politics with them because you know obviously there were other things that took precedent but uh, certainly a little bit of a shift of perspective. So one of the things that's fundamentally, I think, unhealthy is talking about politics in certain forums. Oh, no, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's it's a good way to drive yourself up the wall. Yeah, right? yeah, you got to dis- be able to disengage or find topics to talk about right. people, other things with, you know. And you kind of have to, like, 
engage with people where you can remind yourself that in general there are human beings oh right? yeah no no for sure yeah. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely true right. and also remind yourself that you're a human being and our politics are come second to yeah that maybe right because I mean as you point out like the opposite of fascism is community mm-hmm. right so like we should be taking this time to forge bonds reach out and also just strengthen the bonds we have right yeah no no but I do think there is like people are radicalizing yeah that's true yeah. I think they are like hardening up in their positions and being far less willing to listen to other people and that that just hurts me it makes, yeah. me, makes it hard to have conversations with people and I don't know right? fun productive ones good faith ones right yeah I think we're going to talk about this time and time again um, so you're taking care of yourself you're yeah, yeah, yeah 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 no I mean the, that, that cycle I find that cycle I don't think of myself as a violent person so yeah and, but I also think of myself as a person with some spine so I yeah. guess like I'm just assaulted on both sides <laughs> it's just like, fuck man like, so I did it did lead to some self reflection yeah sometimes in, you in just a good can't way. win yeah, yeah you just can't win yeah. but um, uh, beyond that you know uh yeah, eating well, still exercising. I, yeah. I feel, you know, lots of great friends. Really. Yeah. We had a book launch party for this new book we put out, Nerve Endings, the new trans erotic. Okay. You should pick it up. Okay. Uh, brought to you by Instar Books. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it was a really great party, and everybody that came, I think, had a really good time, and it was... Uh, and, and, and good for me again. Sure. Uh, my, my friend Liz has a saying, which is the two things that clean your soul yeah. are swimming in a natural body of water yeah. and going to live performance. Interesting. Interesting. I would say that uh, I find myself uh, reinvigorated every time I go home because I have a pretty right. good family right. at work. Right. Um, so even in relatively dark uh, circumstances, I still find it uh, somewhat. Uh, you know, refreshing or you know, rejuvenating to go yeah. home for me. Because um, I think it, you know, just living in New York City, although it's a great city, it can has a tendency to wear you down. Yeah, being around all of these people that don't care about you, like so <laughs> many of them, just millions that are, we're right. ready to ignore you. It's great someday. It really is. It yeah, my days. wife had this suggestion that this year we were going to try to get out of New York once a month. Um, and we have done that. Unfortunately, both times we've gone back to visit my family, which it sort of works for me, but for my wife, it's just doubling down. <laughs> Where are you going to go next month? You got something planned? I don't know yet. Yeah, so we, we haven't we, we haven't been great about planning these things. So I, we really, I think the weather will get warmer, so just getting out of New York City is really easy. So we can go for like hikes and stuff around uh, like Bear Mountain area. So there are plenty of places to go, even even short day trips. Mar-a-Lago, the, the Mar-a-Lago, the Southern White House. The Southern White House is not affiliated <laughs> with the Confederacy. Right? Have you made any progress on Harry Potter? I have made progress on yeah. Harry Potter. Uh, so I'm reading book four now, okay. and uh, yeah, it's great. It's just really charming. Um, I was going to say the other thing that I've been reading because uh, I tend to read um, uh, dense nonfiction, but really light fiction. Um, the other thing I was reading is this series called uh, it's the Bernie Gunter series it's about a detective sort of in in 1930s Berlin um, but they're both, both Harry Potter and Bernie Gunter are mysteries oh right yeah, yeah, yeah. and so it has that kind of crafting around it so the plot drives but also uh, the guy who writes Bernie Gunter which are you know sort of hard-boiled detective novels he also writes children's fiction and J.K. Rowling <laughs> writes mystery and they're both English yeah yeah, yeah. so I bet they know each other yeah um, but I feel like I'm, these are a, it's a weird echo chamber of a style of literature would you recommend uh, Bernie Gunter yeah, yeah. absolutely uh, there are some that are better than others for obvious reasons, but um, if you can handle a fair amount of detail about the rise of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi Party, uh, it's a, a fantastic backdrop 
um, for a detective uh, because he has to compromise and you know um, and the, as the detective gets older he goes to places like Argentina and, oh uh, sure uh, yeah and yeah in Cuba so uh, it's a it's a really if you like detective fiction and you like historical kind of dramas yeah it's great I have been I've been thinking a lot about uh, how we're both James Elroy fans yeah about how much like the current movie is like, like a, it's like a giant James Elroy story yeah there's something really dark and corrupt and at yeah. some point like this guy that you hate is gonna gonna be a child he's a, going to end up being a child molester like, yeah. That's the big reveal. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah yeah there's someone got molested yeah, that's yeah. the end of that story yeah uh, I guess like something I'd recommend for as far as soul care goes yeah. I've been listening to there's only been one episode so far of this podcast Missing Richard Simmons Oh yeah, I saw you mentioned that yeah, on our Reddit. Everybody needs to listen to it. It's amazing. It's really, really good. Like it's about Richard Simmons like disappearing okay. uh, from public life, which has happened in the past couple of years. Yeah. But it's all about why and who Richard Simmons was and what he brought to you know, oh, the right. world. But he's retreated, right? He's retreated. He's yeah, not he's actually like missing, yeah. yeah, yeah. But the the point is that Richard Simmons is firm. You know, thirty years was right, such a like, in-your-face, like you right. know, uh, avatar of I guess the American you know spirit and also like yeah. multi-level marketing in some ways. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, uh, very commercial, very self-promoting, very like yeah, yeah. also self self-improvement. Yeah, self-improvement. Yeah. Right. But you know, I realized when listening to it is I have the exact same place in my brain for Donald Trump as I do Richard Simmons as these like eighties people who are I didn't know don't take very seriously. <laughs> you know, and who are right. uh, trying to sell you something, and yeah. I don't really care about that much. Right. Uh, but like Richard Simmons is like the good version of that, you know. Like, right. It, right. What he's selling actually kind of works if you exercise. You know, sure. it's normal people trying to get healthy. Right. Whereas Donald Trump is like the evil version of it. Sure. And I mean, and to the so extent. Are, that, are we saying Richard Simmons twenty twenty? Yeah, that's what, exactly. Bring we find him, we pull him out. I think, but you know, whatever, whatever Richard Simmons represents, I guess. Yeah. Whatever his. Like, his spirit is is definitely missing from the world. Yeah, like a flawed but aspirational yeah, like yeah. enthusiasm. Enthusiasm and also trying optimism. To with, also yeah. trying to connect with everybody. Yeah, you know, like no matter what people look like or who they are, right. and why, and you know, trying to help them out to the extent sure. that you can, and just. You know, I think it's gone. And, like, and there's only one episode of this podcast so far, but it's going to be an ongoing podcast to try to like find out why he's retreated and you know theories and the the the, the guy who runs it knows him personally. Okay, the person that is Jim. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I recommend it. It made okay. me. It made me. I'm a strong man. Yeah. It made me tear up a few times. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, fair enough. All right. Uh, you want to go into politics? Yeah, yeah. Let's so, do it. What, uh, what a week! Right. What a week. Well, this is the section where we like to talk about politics. Um, Various and sundry, but mostly yeah. just about Donald Trump. Yeah, he's, he's in our he's in our hearts, he's in our heads. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it's been an interesting week. Um, I think as I can comparing this to the first two weeks, where it was just an onslaught of executive orders and back and forth. Um, but now things seem to have died have died down in terms of what the administration is trying to do as opposed to what's happening to it. Right. It's gone from active to passive. It, it, maybe even retreat. We, I think we've taken down three really important fighter pilots for the Trump administration. Sure, yeah. Indianapolis, Conway, and Flynn. Uh, all went down in the same week. All had, all had terrible things happen to them. Kellyanne Conway is the one person that I'm like, oh, okay, well... If I were Republican, I want her to survive. Yeah, she may go down with this ship. Yeah, yeah. if the ship goes down. Yeah, uh, but let's talk a little bit about Michael Flynn. Actually, sure, because that's kind of the biggest headline um, in terms of what happened, and uh, and I guess maybe roughly about 
a week ago, things started to really unravel for the Trump administration as far as Michael Flynn went. It seems like he absolutely did talk to the Russians um, about sanctions. And um, I think maybe most importantly, he misled the vice president, Mike Pence, about whether or not he talked about sanctions. And so as of, as of a week ago, he had to resign. So this is a big high cabinet-level position that had was forced to resign. I mean, until there's or further journalism that proves anything at all that leads to a connection between, like, Russian operatives and the uh, election, I think it's going to have zero effect. Right. Except it's going to put in a better national security advisor, which right. has already happened that, you know, yeah. I think will we'll strengthen Trump, actually. I think Flynn was a huge weak link. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he was a huge liability that yeah. Trump was just blind to. Yeah. Uh, I do think there is one, and effect that will be good for America. I don't think Trump has the space now to be removing any sanctions on Russia. Right. That, I think, is off the table for the foreseeable future unless something else happens. Right. There has to be some miracle. Yeah. There's no way Republicans can be anything but tough on Russian involvement in Ukraine. Sure. And and Syria and just the economic sanctions. I I don't think they're going anywhere. Do we really think that there's someone in the administration that is compromised, right? I, in a lot of ways, I think there's there's something about the inner circle that seemed unhealthily, I guess, close to Russia or un, un, just willing to give them the benefit of the doubt in a way that doesn't make sense politically in the U.S. Um, but I don't know if that that topic has gone away. Yeah, it's going to be there forever. This is the this is the you know it's going to be a persistent itch for the Trump forever. He's, yeah. ne- he's never going to be able to get away from it. The other thing, you know, it just kind of brings home um, is the idea that, and you keep bringing this up, that that Trump, his closest advisors, are sort of embittered mediocrity. Definitely. Uh, yeah, and so Mike Flynn, I think, is a great example of this, is that even within someone who's coming up in an institution like the military, they tend to be, quote-unquote, outsiders, yeah. but certainly... Um, lacking experience and also I think the reason that they are close to Trump is they draw from this pool of ideology that is whatever you want to call it but it effectively is something like a white nationalism right so like I think that's those were his closest advisors so you see Flynn you see Bannon you see people like that who share a mind or a, an outlook with Trump which is this sort of ugly nationalism fortress of fortress America which is a horrible but because that's that is even for the Republican Party part of a fringe element up until 2016, um, it's just a very shallow pool of talent to draw from. So that's why I think he has had some pretty weak appointees up until now. Um, I or uh, certainly appointees that aren't familiar with how to pull the levers of government. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you could define each member of the Trump administration by what they want revenge for right. in their life right. that has gone wrong for them. Right. So I think this is a. I think there's a subtle, a little bit more of a subtle uh, issue because I think with the new the National Security Advisor, like he's actually replaced. A lackey with someone who has at least some credibility, right? Yeah. Um, so or Mattis has replaced a lackey. <laughs> so I, don't, I don't believe for a second Trump knew right, this right, man was at all right. So, so there is something about um, a, re- a respectable Republican uh, center coming to even play in in the administration or at least in the cabinet. So. Yeah, I do find it slightly alarming that our most like powerful, competent people in government right now are members of the army, right? Yeah, 
bothers me on a Republican. I like some political pushback to the Army's plans. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Right, right. Um, um, it is something worth noting, but at the same time, like, considering what they were repl- they were replacing, or it's not a bad move. Yeah. At least in the short term. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely good that there's been a replacement. If we can, you know, get a replacement, you know, every month, <laughs> it's great for us, you know. Yeah, I'm happy. I, I would be super happy if Kelly and Conway took over Steve Bannon's position. A fantastic thing the Republicans, the right, the conservatives have done, getting us to talk about the deep state yeah. as opposed to civil service and civil society. Right. Deep state is a word that sounds ominous and, like, threatening yeah. and secret. None of this shit's secret. It's the it's the bureaucracy. It's, right. It's as boring as it gets. I think this is an interesting thing that came up, is at what point are the security services or um, the CIA or the FBI interfering with government to a point where we're uncomfortable, right? So, I mean, I, I don't think that it's wrong to raise some concern about, well, how much of a role does the FBI or the CIA play in Absolutely. active politics? Sure. Yeah. And I think the Democrats should be sensitive to this, right? Absolutely. Because, yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. Lord knows we, we we were stung by maybe an interfering or incompetent FBI investigation or two. No, for sure. But I think calling it deep state is a mistake. I think you call it, you know, right. civil service, civil, right. civil society. These right. Are. And I think there's, I think there are both sides of the argument that can be played, right? So yeah. one, on the one hand, you have career bureaucrats, people who I presume deeply care about uh, the security of the United States yeah. uh, being willing to draw a line saying this is no this is not okay this is someone who I think is a threat uh, to the United States and that person is the president so <laughs> where you have reports of people not reporting into the president because they don't think he he can be trusted not to spread secrets especially to Russia that's concerning we should be concerned or in a more prosaic, banal level, just protecting their jobs. Yeah. This is somebody who's coming in and he's going to gut massive sectors of the sure. of the civil service and he's going to stop government interfacing with NGOs. Yeah. Then they have an incentive to thwart that because right. they, if they believe what they do is valuable yeah. uh, and they've dedicated their lives to it, so I assume they must on some level, uh, it makes sense that they would be attempting to push back. In, right, in absolutely. Well, I mean, I guess, uh, I mean, what's your takeaway? Because, I mean, to me, like, I think it is actually concerning that... Absolutely concerning, but I do think that looking at it like some sort of, like, insidious cabal is the wrong way to go about it. These are, you know, finding out who's involved and who's, it's possible very easily, figuring out who's resigning, who, who appointees are from where. Yeah. It's a matter of journalism, and I think calling it the, just the deep state and leaving it there is doing violence to the actual reality of things and makes people paranoid. Right, absolutely. I think it's a weird um, twisting of personal philosophy that the Republicans have to be uh, all of a sudden against the FBI or the CIA. All of this reminds me, there's a pretty good article, I think, in the Washington Post, and effectively it was a culture clash at the time between the FBI, who was investigating uh, someone at the State Department, and this person in the State Department, she was uh, she worked in Pakistan. She she effectively did nothing wrong, but from the FBI's point of view, the way she communicated or talked to people on the ground, it looked like a breach of security every single time. So it often is a culture clash there between um, how the FBI looks at what is permissible and what isn't. In the same way that it is pretty hard to find hackers and security experts that aren't stoners. 
it's also pretty hard to find linguists that aren't globalists. Yeah. You know, they're going to have a rough time staffing the State Department with people that are simultaneously interested in these countries, but also, you know, willing to throw them under the bus at a moment's notice. Right. A lot of them, a lot of our State Department is made up of people from these countries, for right. instance. That is how we maintain connections. It's, it's the American advantage. We have a huge immigrant population that we can draw upon to interface with their country of origin and keep ties there back and forth. Right, and I think this goes back to a point where uh, the ideology of the Trump administration is such that you effectively choke off a pool of talent, mm-hmm. a s- or several pools of talent, and you're trying to pull one from strident nationalists, and within that pool, then you're hoping to get skills that you need to run a bureaucracy, yeah. and that's difficult. So another thing that made the news was um, Trump's attack on the press. Mm. Um, so I'm not interested in what Trump said or what he said. I think in some ways it was a little bit of a distraction so he could... Uh, throw up a bunch of smoke and mirrors around what was happening with Flynn, right? The debacle around Flynn. Uh, my question is, I uh, my question is, okay, so we kind of agree that maybe the media isn't what it used to be, right? And I think this is one thing um, that the right keeps hammering is that the media is really bad. Um, look what's happened. I think that's more about the business of the uh, of newspapers and other forms of news organizations that just aren't as profitable as they once were. Yeah, I would say specifically Google not kicking that ad revenue back into for investigative journalism. Yeah, I think the ad space, the fact that the ad space is radically transformed yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, affects the profitability of news reporting agencies and that affects the quality of journalism. You can't hire the best talent, you can't hire, you can't keep a lot of ground staff um, in various offices. Um, so I guess what I wanted to talk to about was what's the solution? Because from what I read on the right, it's there's this sort of uh, collapsing of two two ideas. One, the media is, is has a leftist bias, and two, the media is bad. Therefore, the left is bad. And this is and so the media that is we agree has declined um, is now a stand-in for everything that is left. And so uh, the right takes whatever bad form of media that came across the wires today as uh, a sign of terrible thinking on the part of the left. I guess my counter-argument is, uh, you have to point to me um, any kind of uh, right-leaning piece of journalism that hasn't declined. The media has declined, whether right or left. I mean, I agree that a lot of the media swings left, but I I mean, I used to read the Wall Street Journal religiously. For sure. It's not as good a, ma- a paper as it once was. No. For sure. And they clo- and they, they're closing offices. I think the National Review isn't as good as it once was. So media has declined. So I guess that's my observation. It's not a right or left thing. Yeah. Um, what's the solution, though? It's a good question. First of all, I want to know what Trump's solution is. I mean, he should want the media to be strong. Media is democracy. Uh, he thinks it's weak. He thinks yeah. it's not good. So I want to know what his solutions are. <coughs> To make it better at challenging power, right? What would what would he change about the media to make it better at getting the truth about his plans and programs? And right, because his chosen news sources are asinine. Cable news, a lot of the time. Yeah, uh, it's not the AP. It's not. You know, right. uh, my solution would be. All right, get this. We get. Individual donations together, Bernie style, oh, yeah. to purchase the Weekly World News. Okay, and then we turn it in to like a hardcore, heavy hitting news monthly that just does investigative journalism explicitly and exclusively. Okay, only investigative journalism. Yeah, 
it's the weekly world news. So in addition to the uh, uh, he- heavy hitting, hardcore investigative journalism, we also cover Bat Boy. That's how you get your clicks. That's how you yeah. move the papers and yeah. the grocery yeah, aisle yeah, 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 yeah. and Bat Boy. I think the you know the the the, the leftists agonists for yeah. the National Enquirer was the Weekly World News and it's disappeared. Okay. If, if all news is going to be fake news, we take the fakest news and we make it into like a velvet hammer. <laughs> <laughs> um, more seriously, like yeah. where do you get your news? Where do I get my news? I, as far as the source journalism, I usually go to international sources. Okay. So I trust the BBC, The Guardian, Der Spiegel. Okay. Uh, you know, Al Jazeera, okay. slightly more than I do USA Today, Washington Post, uh, Wall Street Journal. Yeah. And I think the New York Times is slow, mm-hmm. and I think they're frequently not covering any interesting stories. When they finally get the stuff, they yeah. are a good paper of record. Right. I think they do a good job, right. but you're not going to get it first there. Right, or you're not going to get it first in a way that makes any sense, yeah. right? I think they, with their sort of hard-hitting, uh, moment-to-moment reporting tends to be pretty weak. Like, yeah. shooting from the, like, hip kind of analysis tends to be pretty bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's it's just how, you know, I mean, there are good reporters there, obviously. Absolutely, yeah. But I think they're trapped by the, the yeah. need for it to be, like, scientifically sourced, like, really a journal, which I respect and understand, but at yeah. the same time, the news cycle is way faster than that. I would point out that, I mean, several of the sources you cited are state-owned, so there is something... That they there is some some sense that they don't need to follow clickbait. They don't have the same kind of right, yeah. crushing pressures of the cycle, the news cycle as it is, right? Absolutely, so, yeah. So and, there is, and if you you know balance against each other, find a right state-owned paper and a left state-owned paper, and yeah. you know see what the metal is, then you have some sort of consensus about what is Not true sure. in the world. Yeah. So you know, I think I, I don't think it's bad to read BBC and Al Jazeera back to back and see what they think. I think you get a pretty interesting picture of America. Yeah, that's fair. Well, so yeah, well, so what would you say you get your news? Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I tend to just subscribe to a lot of news sources and see what they write on Twitter. So, um, so I would say I, I tend to read mostly. Uh, the Washington Post, uh, The Economist, uh, BBC, um, less of The Guardian. Um, I think there are, and then after that, there's like a long tail of things that come to my my Twitter crawl. Um, I tend to try to balance it out with sort of right press, right leaning press. So National Review, Red State, a couple of others are in my news feed, um, which is always interesting to counterbalance. And it's also really interesting to see who, what their priorities are. For sure. Um, so that's and, and I think one of the problems is that we have a news cycle where if something comes up or something happens, there are, everyone reports it. Right? There aren't two or three media sources that we rely on. So everyone has a, ha, everyone reports it. Everyone feels that they need to report it, and then also on top of that, everyone needs to get out fast. Right? And so so there's a huge crowded space in terms of sort of first pass from news reporting. You can get information. Um, pretty easily, at least sort of the surface level information. It's the analysis that I think has gone away. Should editors be accredited? Should it, should we make them? You know, should there be some sort of like you know test for editors and a, and a, a guiding body that controls credentials for editors and yeah. some way for editors to have their credentials removed if they knowingly put out fake news stories right. that are unsourced. I mean, something to think about. I think I'm not a huge fan of credentialed professional organizations in the yeah. first place. To, to think about the role of the editor yeah. as a and as a profession that has ethics and standards, right. I think is not a bad idea. Yeah. But, you know, news 
it's just what you consider the media. Like right. the villain in Natural Born Killers was the media too. Right. I mean, it's it's a classic thing to be against the media while consuming massive amounts of it. Right. Whatever your media is, you trust, and whatever somebody else's media is, you don't. You right. Know? It's and so yeah. The, the the real question of do you trust the media just is a question of how much you trust other people's media. Yeah. I think we don't believe that anybody else is operating in good faith these days. I think we're all smarter about the news yeah. now, and so we're, we've all we all understand how it can be weaponized. Beyond just weaponization, I think there's a level of incompetence and yeah. superficiality. Uh, I I would suggest to fellow liberals and leftists and progressives and radicals and anarchists and the right to read more books. Yeah. I think I think a book has the ability to get to the deep issues. I think you need a lot of historical context for any news story. And I think a book puts things in perspective and processes things completely in a way that even long-form journalism doesn't. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to bring this back, but did you read uh, McMaster's book? No, I haven't. I guess we should. We should yeah. read McMaster's book. I suppose it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. He's got that, you know, he was he's most well-known for, for, you know, being against the Vietnam War uh, as it was sold. Yeah. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how that translates. Yeah. So we've got two good writers in the Trump ambit right now, uh, McMaster's and Gorsuch. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see right. if they're. Uh, It'll be. Uh, <laughs> they're letting a thousand flowers bloom. <laughs> um, I just want to go back to the notion that when something happens in the news cycle, part of this chaos is planned by the Trump administration. So sure, what yeah. gets reported, I kind of think of is sort of being either the attack on the media, which I think was a really good uh, for the Trump brand um, because it distracted from Russia. It's a risky strategy that I think the Trump administration plays, where they they need they want to antagonize, they want to get in charge of uh, or on top of the news cycle in order to distract from their failings. Um, so they say something outrageous, and Trump is always good for that kind of stuff. And the media plays into this uh, into this role where they get very indignant and, and, and eats up a lot of news cycles. But there's a lot of stuff that doesn't get reported. Is my point. Um, so there are kind of there's some underlying stories that I think continue to get neglected. One I think is is just the. Uh, general corruption of what's happening in terms of how Trump is running a presidency um, to benefit his own personal business. Mm -hmm. um, so these are stories that kind of uh, crawl out, but they just don't get nearly as much coverage. So um, the way that Mar-a-Lago is being run, Ooh, yeah, yeah Mar-a-Lago is basically a combination of uh, a White House retreat and a tourist agency where you could, or tourist trap that you can effectively maybe see the president and whoever's visiting him. People are certainly paying to visit him in Mar-a-Lago. So yeah, it's the Versailles strategy. You right. move your, your place of power outside of the political swamp and then people must visit you and your courtiers must circle you and you're, you're totally in control. Right, but it's a... and. It would be as if Versailles was also charging rent, yeah, sure. right, by the night. <laughs> yeah, which uh, that's what Mar-a-Lago has done. So, like, not only that, but and also welcomes other people. So you could also just visit Versailles as a hick from wherever, just so that you can say that you saw the court, right? So, I mean, there's some, there's something much deeper here, I think, in terms of how much the presidency is effectively being pimped mm -hmm. um, uh, as a tourist spot. And you could argue that in the past, certainly people have sold rooms in the White House effectively, like big donors get to sleep in the White House. But on this order and this sort of crassness, I think is relatively new, right? Yeah. So Mar-a-Lago. There's another piece of corruption, too, where I think uh, China passed... Um, 
or gave Trump the copyright to his own name in China, and there was some dispute. And not so, uh, and it's pretty clear that at least in the timeline, it's close to when he started to go back and talk about a one-China policy. Yeah. So it's not clear that there was a direct hit for tap, but I would be super suspicious. So originally, Trump was talking about cozy up to Taiwan, using it as a bargaining chip, but now that China has effectively passed a resolution saying that Trump owns the business of Donald Trump owns the copyright to the Trump name in China. Uh, he's all of a sudden become much more cozy with the Ch- mainland Chinese. And that's sort of a... I mean, if it in fact is that corruption, it is a corruption in the face of democracy. Taiwan is an actual democracy. Mainland China is anything but a democracy. And I think there was one more thing I want to talk about, which is sort of Steve uh, Bannon's gambit to like try to pull in traditionally democratic white working class voters and this seems to have gone on two fronts there was a report a couple uh, a little bit more than a month ago about how uh, the Trump administration met with sort of union uh, union leaders in order to try to um, I don't know talk to the to uh, offer them the right to work right the right to work <laughs> right exactly <laughs> no contracts no contract uh, this is a strategy and so far as Steve Bannon has a strategy other than purifying the country to like try to try to create a base for his party, not the Republican Party, or that surrounds uh, that revolves around working class white people. Um, so, uh, so certainly reaching out to the union seems like a part of the strategy. I don't have any great insight other than it's something that gets unreported. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about was um, he has been making inroads to or trying to create a faction, particularly conservative faction within the Catholic Church. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't know what to think about this. This is relatively new to me, and I don't understand how the politics play out. But I knew that the Pope is relatively liberal in certain ways. I would say he's not as conservative as other Catholics. Are. Relatively liberal. <laughs> okay. You're relatively me. liberal compared to Catholics. Yeah, yeah. In the Catholic right-wing hierarchy, he's sure. pretty far to the left. For, for a pope. For a pope. I mean, look what well, he's I mean, Borgias, they were pretty liberal. We've had some liberal popes, you know. Sure. <laughs> sure. Uh, like in the last century. Yeah, last century, sure. Um, so, uh, so I was wondering what you were, what you thought about it. Jesus actually trying to carve out, I think, a conservative faction within the Catholic Church. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's his least <coughs> smart strategy. To the extent that he pisses off that Catholic Church hierarchy by meddling in Vatican politics, yeah. which is so much more Byzantine and like fucked up than American politics and eternal. Yeah, I, I feel like Steve Bannon is asking for a a short trip out of a Vatican Tower. So yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's yeah. so much harder. Yeah, and you know, brutal and murderous. And Canada and Mexico are both far more Catholic countries than the United States is. Yeah. So I don't really know what goal there is there you know the most Catholic countries in France probably I think mm. that's the most densely Catholic country uh, so I think if Le Pen wins yeah. I think there's a possibility for her to create some sort of space for a conservative Catholic movement but you know I, I just don't see Bannon being in any way able to influence Vatican politics yeah is there a way that a conservative faction helps him in the U.S., which I kind of don't see either. No, I just don't see... I mean, certainly conservative Catholics exist. Yeah. I mean, no question. Bannon, for instance, Codway, Fox News. Do you think he's just pissed off because he doesn't have a uh, he doesn't have a European pope now? <laughs> but the pope would always be pro-refugee. It's impossible. Right. I mean, the, whether it's, you know, Benedict or... or or uh, 
there's just certain things the Catholics like, which is number one on the list is globalization. Yeah, that's the Catholic Church. Right, man. exactly. It is maybe the first global organization. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. or at least one that has stood on its own feet for a long, long time. Yeah, that's Roughly the whole thing. Years, yeah. If you were to draw a list of Catholic hierarchies, globalization would be number one. Yeah, possibly like repressing women would be number two. <laughs> but definitely, globalization is number one. Getting, yeah, getting everywhere. Right? Yeah. Making sure that there are bonds between countries, yeah. whether that's trade or, you know. I, I see his entire world philosophy utterly at odds with the Catholic Church. Yeah, I, I don't see how it plays out well for I him. think making it known that you're provoking an internecine battle incited is the worst possible move if that's your goal. Right, you should definitely have been more quiet. So it makes it always makes me wonder, like, everyone talks about how Bannon is a master strategist, but this seems... I don't see it as being anything other than asinine. Yeah, uh... Yep. A better strategy would be to try sucking up to the current pope, yeah. and then you know maybe there would be some something that you know, the pro life stuff. Like there's things yeah. the pope will be on your side about, right. making that known and trying to like get. You know, there's always they're pretty right wing already. You know, there's things you can say. <laughs> you could find some ground. Yeah, absolutely. More ground than not. Like right. it just seems like he, if he really wants to be alone in yeah. the world, have his own special brand. Right, right, right. All right. Uh, I think that's it for politics. Yeah. Uh, you want to go to our doubling down on defeat? Yes. This is where we talk about how the left is digging its own grave. <laughs> ultimately, with a backhoe. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, this has actually been a week or a good week and a half of the Republican Party imploding, right? Sure. So, um, whether or not just kind of letting the administration run its mouth and letting the poll numbers follow it downward. Yeah. Um, whether or not that's a strategy or it's just something they lucked into, I'm not sure. Um, I was kind of curious what you thought about it as a strategy because it seems like they're just like, oh, we're going to shut up for a little while and let him talk. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think... I've been thinking this is going to happen for all year. I think yeah. we all have that. Eventually, people are just going to start to get sick of Trump. Yeah. It just seems like he just needs attention so badly. And he's like a bad improv group, you know? Yeah. He's not giving anything back. Right. You know, so there's... I feel like people's attention spans and, and goodwill isn't going to wear out. Right. Uh, so it's not bad. What Chuck Schumer said, I think today, that uh, the GOP is going to back away from him in a couple months, you know? Oh, interesting. Uh, I don't know what he's telegraphing with that. But, I I mean, I I don't think they've been passive. I think the Democrats are just in the minority in every branch of right. government. There's just not a hell of a lot they can do. Yeah. Um, I think they... It's not a strategy, except insofar as they're calling it a strategy because it's their only move. Right. Um, but what do you think? I mean... So I think what I haven't seen is a lot of the... Democratic leadership sort of conquer the news cycle in the past mm, week and a that's half. That's true. Um, so they have been relatively voiceless. I don't know if that's part of a deliberate strategy or whatever their messaging about the Trump implosion isn't working. Mm -hmm. um, and if it's the first, then they should actually be trying to message about, they should be trying to have put out some sort of coherent message that says, oh, we're actually the responsible party. Yeah. Because no matter what, I think right now the Republican Party is at odds with itself. For sure. I mean, uh, there's a lot of 
uncharismatic bad politicians fighting each other in the Democratic Party right. would be on top. The king or queen of the uncharismatic bad politicians. Yeah, absolutely. And I am waiting for one of them, for all of them to give up and then new blood to take over right. from some area angle. Right, yeah. But I think the problem is that you have Kamala Harris and then like Cory Booker and yeah. they don't know how to play the the Senate game the way that Schumer or I guess uh, Pelosi knows how to play the Congress game right yeah for sure Um, so I think it's helpful to have old hands um, but I don't know but they need to get out it's an ego thing they need to get out of the way and pick a horse that is not themselves right absolutely and help them out yeah I I agree I, I don't know how well the Democratic senior leadership is making way for new blood um but again, I think one of the things that we I keep bringing up is that I think the Democratic Party has a real problem with messaging, mm-hmm. and it's very easy, especially as the Republican Party just struggles with how much they're going to support Trump, and it seems like if you're paying attention to the right-wing news, there's just a lot about that. They're really ambivalent about... Or the ambivalence is growing, how about that? I don't mm-hmm. know if they're really ambivalent, but certainly uh, there are vulnerabilities there. Um, it just seems a shame that the Democratic Party and leadership hasn't come up with Messaging, very simple messaging about how we would do X, Y, and C better. And it's very easy to sort of like backseat driver this thing. Um, what do you think of Trudeau? That's in the order to talk about. Oh, what do you? What do I think of Trudeau? I, to I, what extent should the American left be embracing Trudeau? Um, I think he's unproven. Um, I think so. It, it's weird. Uh, I, th- I think of American left as being pretty shallow when they understand as far as their understanding of international politics. Oh, yeah. So there's like one or two good guys, and then there are people we don't know how to think about. Yeah. And so in this case, in this cycle, right, like Trudeau mm-hmm. um, is a great guy. He's like a shining beacon of everything we hope for. And right? he just negotiated a big trade deal with Europe. Right. And in the uh, same week that he visited the White House to talk about like women and and right, uh, absolutely and jobs. Uh, and I will say that Trump seems to be fond of him. Um, I ha- think it helps that he's uh, not brown. <laughs> sure, <laughs> it's like a trading partner that's not brown. Yeah, so he's he's happy about that. Um, he certainly got won a lot of plaudits. I always thought of him as a lightweight mm-hmm. um, and someone who's sort of been thrust into this kind of throne of symbolic liberalness mm-hmm. um, and he also kind of won on his name so yeah. uh, so he's the son of a former prime minister uh, I don't know I've never been that impressed with, I mean I think he's I don't know if he's come up with policy that I thought was insightful or smart um, and I think he's more or less staying the course of what Canadian liberal politics looks like mm-hmm. um, so that's a little to the left of American politics but I think most people forget that Canada had Stephen Harper for many years yeah, but a Trudeau-Merkel alliance looks really bad for Trump if they can successfully pull it off, especially right. with respect to pushback about refugees, sure, uh, about the wall, yeah. about a lot of the more, I don't know, uh, cruel aims of the Trump administration. Yeah, I think any I think any alliance that he can pull off is good, right? Like, I mean, it proves that he can work with the world in a way that Trump seems to not be able to. Yeah. Um, I will say this, that, again, Canada is a small country, um, and so it, uh, it's all very symbolic, right? Like, I don't know how much heft they really pull, um, either in terms of international politics or in the refugee crisis or the ongoing refugee issue. Canada can only absorb so many, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, no, really sure. to, um, it's really up to it's really up to places like America 
to decide what their policy is. So um, I think, again, there's a certain superficiality to liking Trudeau. I don't know how much power he really controls on the international stage. So he's nice. Uh, he's a boxer. Yeah. Uh, I guess he's relatively good-looking. Yeah. So, like, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I just find him a, a, a superficial person who doesn't really have a, a sense of, okay, well, this is... This is a counter-strategy or a counter-philosophy to Trump. I think he's willing to play a secondary role in, on the international stage, which is what Canada always does. That's something else. I'm fascinated by French politics. Yeah. Uh, Macron right now. Macron is <laughs> an interesting man. Marsh. Yeah, well, Marsh. I, I, think, it's, I think it's an interesting uh, coalition yeah. strategy for and something we might could see here with this division of the charismatic leader yeah. for pulling that energy of the populist left into a broader democratic coalition. So I'm curious as to how that all shakes out. Yeah, I'm mean, definitely watching the the French elections to see what happens. To the extent that we feel impotent about changing our own election, I would love to see leftists who all took French in high school get involved on the internet. <laughs> Fighting for Macron against <laughs> Le Pen. Oh, much, Yeah, we'll see how that turns out. Because, I mean, it could be a continuation of, of a general march, right? Yeah, of, yeah move, a movement or backlash to this. It could either be the movement or the backlash, right? Yeah. So if Le Pen wins, then, I mean, it would be another domino, right? And yeah. kind of white Western European nationalism sort of demanding of politics and France is sort of set for this I mean it does have a fractured politics it does seem like there is a discredited left okay. uh, and a relatively weak right so I mean there could be a third party in the form of an ultra-nationalist I would like to see the left we've got this massive tech sector that's really good at like finding people and getting them profiles they don't even want necessarily like LinkedIn profiles right yeah like we can pinpoint people to you know a city block and find them sure I'd love to see instant GoFundMes for detainees <laughs> whoever is picked up in a dragnet by Trump's administration or whatever by yeah. ICE I'd love to see instant, you know, pages made where we can begin to donate money to them and their families. I would like it to be like winning the lottery yeah, to be deported people. by Trump. Yeah, because there's some new stuff coming down the yeah, pipe yeah. uh, in terms of uh, uh, new policies, uh, which are more draconian, which is not a surprise. But yeah, it would be great if you like, oh, if you get deported... Um, yeah, your life changes forever. You know, for the better. Yeah, the kick in the face from America, but then also the <laughs> new car. <laughs> There's two halves to us, right. you know, and the yeah. fact that one half is in power doesn't mean we can't, you know, right. attempt to help out. All right, and you've talked a little bit about this—the social tax, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. voluntary taxes. Yeah. Additionally, I for it, it creates a chain of humanity. We know where they are. Right. They have to be alive to get their money. Yeah. Uh, they have to be kept alive by ice in order to, you know, they're not just being held somewhere. Right. Uh, yeah, it's super easy. Like, I mean, at some point, I, I don't think we're that far from from creating internment camps. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a little bit of hyperbole, but I don't. But it's a very easy thing. I think you pointed this out. If Mexico refuses to accept repatriated. Uh, migrants, and I think they have a really strong case that they're not Mexican, and a lot of them aren't. Yeah. Then, Honduran. Yeah, or Guatemalan. Yeah. Or, or, yeah, so if anyone from not Mexico gets repatriated to Mexico, right, I think that's... Uh, you, uh, I don't know what the administration's going to do, because they're basically going to have a lot of people in jails that they're going to have to intern. Yeah. It's an expensive, stupid, cruel, horrible problem that we don't need to solve. Right. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, and uh, so 
This voluntary social tax. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the ICE is doing the hard work of finding the most marginal people. <laughs> we can do the easy work of giving them $27 a day. Sponsor, <laughs> yeah. Sponsored and undocumented. Yeah, that we have, you know, brutalized. Right. Uh, in, that, or that have been brutalized in our name. Huh. Uh, so if I were a Silicon Valley tech billionaire, I would get some. Yeah, some I, mean, I think you could do it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, no, it's, a, it's an interesting idea. I wanted to talk before we leave doubling down on defeat. I wanted to talk about one more thing, which was um, uh, I brought this up before, but like, so one way to think about uh, the democratic process in America is as a board game where they're trying to take territory from us and they being the Republicans and the Democrats trying to win territory from from and, uh, and back and so um, different parts of the coalition split off and, and and move back and forth but I think one of the things that seems particularly weak of the Republican coalition at least in the past week and a half is the security hawk oh sure yeah coalition and it was always a vulnerable part of the Republican coalition if, you, if it is a part of the Republican coalition um, certainly a lot of uh, foreign policy um Grandees in the Republican Party actually supported Hillary Clinton, and I think rightly so. She had a clue. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's not clear. And effectively, what's happening now is that the military is taking over foreign policy, mm-hmm. which is okay, but it's not great. Mm-hmm. Um, Ideally, so, the State Department should handle foreign policy, but okay. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> sure, we'll give it to the military. Yeah. Um, so, uh, that is one thing that I, uh, I think is worth thinking about is how. The Democrats position themselves as being the party that is responsible when it comes to foreign diplomacy or foreign relations. Yeah. And I think that's an easy win. Something, you know, I would challenge people to maybe table the discussion about whether they're ready to punch a Nazi and learn Spanish. <laughs> you know, it's like punching a Nazi, except, right. you know, a little bit more useful. Right. It's like punching 20 Nazis <laughs> in your fucking soul <laughs> is to learn Spanish. There are plenty of other languages as well. Sure, but that's like that's something, you know, it's it's not just a foreign language, it's an American language. Right. It's, it's a language for, you know, the people next door to you. you know? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. That's It's definitely... The, to become more globalist in a time of nationalist retrenchment, I think, is an important thing for Democrats yeah. to do. I, I agree. What do you think about the Democratic Socialist Party? I don't. <laughs> I don't. Okay. Am I supposed to? Either there's a resurgence. People are talking about joining up. and. Oh, just... so this is the difference, I think. Yeah. Uh, I am definitely not a socialist. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, and this is the reason I've never supported Bernie. I just, right. uh, I don't, I don't think that we, uh, I, I don't think America exists as a country that is particularly happy with a lot of redistribution. Uh, we do a fair amount. I just don't think in, I, I think there's, there's a virtue there, I think. Um, uh, there's also a, a downside, but I have never been a huge fan of, of socialist politics. Um, I think just redistribution is, is problematic. And I think I probably am a socialist, but I'd rather be in the room with you than the democratic socialist. <laughs> so, what do you think of Keith Ellison, speaking of... I think he's fine. I honestly think the DNC is not an important position. I think it's a ceremonial position that has like very limited power and goals. Don't they allocate funds? They definitely allocate funds, but it's it's their main job is just to be the figurehead that serves as like 
a stamp on the presidential election. Or the, mm. You know, the, you're not going to hear about the DNC. The, whether everybody, if everybody can agree on Keith Ellison is the person who's going to, I think, I think the reason we care about the DNC head right now is because we don't have anybody. Yeah, we have no one else who's effectively a spokesman. And yeah. again, it goes back to our point: you should have a, sa- a shadow cabinet. <coughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. I mean Keith Ellison, Minnesota Muslim, great. Sure, that makes sense to me. Like for it, I think don't care. Yeah, whoever you want. Right. I didn't care about Debbie Wasserman Schultz either. I don't <laughs> think they're that powerful. I know they're not. Actually. Okay. Uh, uh, all right, that's fair. Uh, how about you? You? Um, I just, I mean, I don't know very much about him, and I, I see like a lot of people are reporting like some of the stupider things he says, like uh, and uh, flirting with accusing him of being anti-Semitic. So. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but he's not going to be running for anything. That's right. like, you're never going to be voting for, I mean, except for them, you know, people involved in the, you know, we're not talking about getting rid of superdelegates. We're not talking about any changes. Okay. We're talking about Keith Ellison being the stamp on this. Right, I just, I, so I guess I would have to know how serious the accusations are. Right? Oh, as far as being anti-Semitic. Yeah. I'm sure they're not serious. I'm sure they're 0% serious if he's actually in contention for being the head of the DNC. Okay. I mean, well. I, I, I'm sure they're, you know, Rank slander. Rank I'm defending slander. Keith Ellison. All right, all right. <laughs> if he turned out to be a horrifying anti-Semite, then I will re- I will rescind my uh, my approval for this position that is meaningless. So. <laughs> <laughs> and now that's on the record. Sure. I guess our new our next section is outside the bubble, where we try uh, to uh, bring in some discussions happening outside our liberal elitist New York bubble. Ah, yeah. That's- uh, such a such a comfortable bubble. Yeah. Uh, so this week, read, read the Metro today. <laughs> I get all my news from the Boy. Metro. I read Boy. <laughs> uh, so I um, uh, this week I, it's a, a magazine that I've known for a while. Um, and I already mentioned it, and it's National Review. Um, so not necessarily specifically the National Review. I think it's a it's a magazine that not only I think has declined in in, in terms of. Uh, quality, which I, I think it has. I think it's also very much declined in terms of readership and influence. So it's no mm-hmm. longer the standard bearer of the Republican Party's intellectual elite. Um, so I think... What is the standard bearer of the Republican Party? So, <laughs> so I actually think they've gone to radio. Yeah, yeah. True. I mean, I th- I think in some ways there there are uh, it's fractured. Yeah. Um, so like people like Ben Shapiro have their own cult following. It's not to say that they don't have good conservative writers. I just think that they... I, again, I think in general, print journalism has declined. They haven't been able to connect to a uh, popular Republican message in a long time. So mm-hmm. I think they're just not as influential. But um, the, I posted this on Reddit, um, but there are a couple of uh, articles, and there's a back and forth where uh, different people in the National Review uh, try to uh, split the or try to define the the line between nationalism and patriotism and uh, it's a very interesting debate um, and it's a little bit esoteric I think if you come from the left because you tend not to care um, or patriotism isn't something like you think a lot or you spend a lot of energy trying to define um, but it is very much a reflection of how uh, the thinking people on the other side of the bubble, really try to put together um, arguments about where do they draw the line in terms of what is this ugly presence in among, among us, which is uh, the specter of Donald Trump's nationalism, um, versus what do we feel comfortable with uh, in terms of generally being a conservative party. 
Um, so it is a little bit of an esoteric debate, and I don't think it's for everyone, but it is an interesting debate. And so the National Review has two articles, and one was an article about uh, supporting sort of, I think, effectively the groundswell of what we consider nationalism or Trumpism. Uh, Trumpism? I don't know what the adjective is. Uh, I hope I never find out. And then um, it's an interesting debate, I think, especially because it's one of those debates where you... Uh, I don't think, uh, as a leftist or, or a horrible internationalist, we really have a dog in the fight, mm-hmm. right? Like, we just don't care. So, yeah, I'm like, oh, okay, really we, okay. we're, we're not emotionally engaged. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's, I guess it'd be interesting to see the rhetorical devices. I actually enjoy uh, vigorous, like, cruel writing as yeah. much as I don't vigorous, cruel behavior. So I've, I enjoy the National Review's, like, hellish columns, you know, where they just, like, dismantle things and oh, yeah. use a lot of, like... You know, absurd metaphors in order to like talk about how much they disdain something. Yeah, you know, and, and um, I actually, as a side note, I actually wanted to bring up uh, Susan Wright again, mm-hmm. who's like one of, kind of my favorite writers, uh, fellow North Carolinian. Um, so this is so Susan Wright is someone I, I, I follow. She writes for Red State, which is a it's a conservative blog. She was commenting on Trump's apparent war with the press and she has an art she has a piece called Trump's feud with the media needs to stop right now um, it's a totally entertaining a totally entertaining read because she's so very snarky um, so um, my favorite line pretty much of any anything I read last week was in response to uh, Trump's claim that they will continue to win 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 um, with the media. She said, I don't know about the win-win-win, but I am convinced that you will continue to be a fool, fool, fool until you get bored or Steve Bannon fires you. So, uh, I just kind of love that line. And again, I mean, that's from the right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, a great line can change, can change the way people see things on both sides. I remember Matt Tybee commenting about John Kasich that he had a face like a dog catcher. Yeah. And that I could never look at him the same way again. <laughs> Poor John Kasich. Uh, oh, well. Uh, so, yeah, that, that, those are my recommendations. Yeah, yeah. Outside the bubble. Good recommendations. Uh, I, I continue to admire your ability to seek out and imbibe uh, right-wing media. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a leftist with the... Uh, a uh, conservative street. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, I mentioned this, but I was back in North Carolina this week, and so uh, certainly uh, people that I'm related to, at least by marriage, are, are pretty strong Trump supporters. Right, so right. it's always a check to be... And, you know, I mean, I'm friendly and close to these people to some degree, so um, we didn't get a chance to talk about politics. But it is a way to, like, get outside the bubble and be like, oh, oh yeah, no, absolutely. These, these are people I care about. At some point, I'm sure we'll have an interesting debate about politics. Um, yeah. But at the same time, like, I was talking to, like, my sister and my cousin, and they are far more political or far more aware of politics now than I've seen them in ever in their entire lives. So, um... Uh, My uh, my recommendation for Outside the Bubble is, uh, you know, I I miss Texas. It's where I'm from. And it is a red state, but it's a weird state. It's most properly considered, like, its own country. You know, because... More people voted for Hillary Clinton in the Texas primary than live in the state of Vermont. (laughs) You know, more people voted for Hillary Clinton in the uh, election than 
mo- a lot of the New England combined, you know, right. and those people just don't have any representation. Yeah. Right? So you have very you have you know liberals in Texas and you have conservatives, but, right. but liberals in Texas are a strange breed because they're very used to talking to conservatives. Yeah, and they're used to trying to persuade them because they're they're so powerless most of the time. <laughs> they're used to trying to shame and right. thwart conservatives into doing the right thing. So there's a podcast I recommend called Texas Matters, okay. which is just a, it's pretty neutral. I think it's in NPR, but it's just about politics in Texas, and it's got some, you know, probing questions about uh, things happening just specifically with respect to Texas. It tries to find Texas sources in Texas, yeah. and and two I would recommend are are one which is just about the practical problems of building the wall. Yeah. Uh, for border districts and just engineers. Yeah. So it talks to like what you know a, a representative there on a border district out of r- r- near Laredo. Yeah. It's talking about the amount of trade that goes into Mexico, uh, which is like a million dollars a minute. Uh, it's our second biggest trading partner as far as exports. Yeah. Uh, and also just you know the way that the land is like we think about the border you know as one yeah as, as a line on a map but it's mountains down there yeah. and until you know it's, it's, it's private land that they're right. going to be buying which doesn't you know an imminent domain is not something that stirs in the hearts of Texans <laughs> enjoy their private property right uh, and then the, he talks to an engineer just about the practical uh, aspects of building this wall yeah. what it will mean and how much it will cost and uh, where it will go because if we build it on the on the this side of the river, we're effectively giving the Rio Grande to Mexico. Right. Is that something we want to do? Yeah. You know, we ready? We build on the other side of the Rio Grande. We're taking the Rio Grande from Mexico. Yeah. So that's a huge political consideration. No one's really talking about being that that is the border. That's yeah. why it looks so weird. Right. <laughs> but you know, so it's something to consider. Would we be willing to seed, make that line straight <laughs> on the map right, 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 instead right. of squiggly or? Are we going to maintain its fine, squiggly history? Uh, and then another podcast he talks about with a secessionist, yeah, a Texas secessionist who maintains the need for Texas secession even after Donald Trump has won. Texas is in a state that was super enthusiastic about Donald Trump. No, no, he makes that point. He makes that point that that nothing has changed. The federal government is still the federal government. There, you know, Texas will still be ignored by the by both coasts and ought to look out for itself. Uh, Its economy is, you know, as aligned with Mexico as it is the United States. Yeah, but most of the most of the. You know, effects of the trade war would hit Texas first yeah. before it petered out to the rest of the country. Yeah. Uh, and there's, but it was interesting to hear, right. you know, the secessionists uh, talk about the ways in which Texas is, you know, definitely unenthusiastic about a Trump presidency, yeah. uh, despite being pretty conservative. Yeah. Uh, Texas kind of conservative, which is like cheerful hostility. <laughs> she Clinton did better than Obama did in Texas, right. and that was with an, 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 a completely unenthusiastic policy. Uh, if, John, if Trump's running again and against somebody with somebody charismatic running against him, yeah, I think Texas could could pull even closer. So yeah, I guess that's uh, that is it for outside the bubble. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, and now we get a random shit where we pick a topic, talk about it. <laughs> and if you came in here, you fucking slapped the table and said, "I want to talk about soap operas." I think, yes. <laughs> so let's talk about soap operas. So in general, we try to pick topics that aren't political, but. Yeah. It, I'm always reminded of this anecdote where uh, Ben Stein, who was um, he was the son of a pretty famous economist, but I think he was a Republican um, 
functionary at some point. He you know, he ran a game show and win Ben Stein's on money. He's also, so he's he's sort of a minor functionary in the Republican sphere of things. Um, now he's I think he was really behind intelligent design, so he's kind of gone <sighs> to the fringe. That makes so much sense. That's uh, what he's been doing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he, he sponsored a couple of documentaries, but. Well, he was working, I think, maybe as a speechwriter in the Nixon administration, and I'm sure his father helped him make that connection. But uh, so he convinced them that he needed a television in his office, so he, uh, during the afternoon, so he could watch the soap operas because that's how he could commun- That's how he could uh, get a feel for what's going on in the pulse of America. Uh, so, like, he would take a he would take like a break around lunchtime yeah. to watch. Soap opera, sure. Uh, and he was—that was part of his research. <laughs> yeah, it's part of his research. <laughs> uh, anyway, so it's a great topic because I think soap operas are part of a uh, serialized narrative, which sure. I love as a literary form. Yeah, I love yeah. it as, uh, and whatever version it takes. Um, I certainly grew up on a serialized narrative in the form of comic books, yeah. um, which are effectively superheroes, uh, uh, superhero soap opera. Oh, like, absolutely. Uh, the X-Men and its classic runs were basically a superhero soap opera with love triangles and all the whole nine. Um, and so it's, uh, it is certainly a, a medium and a way of form of drama or an aesthetic of drama that I really like. So, uh, and I find myself still watching soap operas to some degree, and maybe not the daytime soaps. Um, but uh, and my wife likes soap operas, and maybe not the same soap operas I like. Um, but I thought it would be an interesting conversation. So, do you watch soap operas at all? Uh, I mean, my great grandma did religiously, so yeah. I, would, I would sit down at her, you know, feet and watch them with her. Yeah, her stories. Uh, I like serial narrative for sure. I think most TV shows are just fucking soap operas now. Yeah. With like better production design and. Yeah. Yeah, there aren't that many episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or mysteries. Right. For some reason, they decided that being part of serious. Uh, television is a, and a way of hooking your audiences is that you come up with these through lines yeah. that are like these long, yeah. strung out, serialized narratives. So yeah. I guess you're right. Like everything is a soap opera. Scandal is a soap yeah, opera. Yeah, yeah. Political soap opera. Yeah. Uh, um, Crazy Anatomy is a medical soap opera. Yeah, I'm kind of minorly obsessed with the show EastEnders. Oh, the British show? Yeah, because yeah. it's so weird. Okay. Have you ever watched the EastEnders? No. It's vile and violent, and there's like. Sex and drugs, and you know, it's all set in this like little like square. Okay. It's just like families fucking each other over for years. And uh, <laughs> I try to watch opera a couple of times over the past summer, and I realized that I just don't like it. Oh, uh, yeah. Even though it is effectively like that melodramatic <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. struggle and relationship yeah, yeah. Um, is at the core of any soap yeah. opera. Uh, I think that I think the genius of soap operas is you have to see people do a lot of banal things yeah. before you can really appreciate their grand melodrama. Yeah. You know, In my house, we've split along the lines. My my wife watches a lot of Korean soap operas, okay, um, which are kind of fantastic. Yeah. Um, uh, she doesn't speak Korean, so she watches it all in subtitles. And I think Hulu right now has a lot of Korean soap operas. Um, but uh, the Koreans, uh, I mean, not as a stereotype, but I mean, they do drama well. Yeah. Um, so I was, I found myself watching kind of a serialized detective show. Uh, so the the show that I was watching was called um, Signal. 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 Okay. Um, so and it's effectively, if anyone's seen something like Frequency, it's basically the same premise. Oh, okay. They talk back and forth between the past, but the fact is that the Korean version of it is very compelling. Um, and uh, maybe the television and movie version uh, in America is not that compelling. 
Um, but I've seen a couple of Korean soap operas, and I think they just handle drama really well, and they're able to ricochet among various genres. So the one thing that I always refer to um, as being really astounding is there's a there was a Korean soap opera called W, and uh, effectively it is the story of a manga or a comic book a character who. Um, uh, who effectively comes to life, and so the creator of this uh, comic book character is a doctor, and she finds herself falling into the comic strip that her father writes, and then the character comes back to life, comes back to our side, but like within like a short order, so within the third episode or fourth episode, there's this huge meta critique of like creation where the this lead character in the comic book is yelling at his creator about this crappy life he gave him because he and and the creator is arguing that he had to give him a crappy life in order to create this great hero. Yeah. And so like and it's it's like a really weird thing. And in the meantime, like seventy percent of it is like this love connection that can't exist because they come from two different worlds, literally. Yeah, yeah. And it's a lot of mooning uh, <laughs> over each other. And um, uh, and if you watch uh, Korean soap operas on various channels, they actually have like a live feed of comments. So it's awesome because you get a peanut gallery, <laughs> which is exactly how I love to watch television. <laughs> Um, so I would check out Korean soap operas, but if if it's teenagers, because that makes sense, because your yeah. hormones are out of control, sure. you should be able to have go through this melodrama or superheroes. Yeah, and so, so those two, so those two combined in the CW. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So That's I watch. Your, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So not great shows, yeah. but I'm perfectly happy with the Flash. Um, being like this teenage superhero <laughs> melodrama. It works perfectly. Like, of course, you feel like the world is put upon your shoulders because it kind of is in this weird scenario. Um, but I find myself really compelled. I really like this serialized narrative. Um, I find myself kind of going through the tropes a lot and then like really appreciating it in a lot of forms. Not only like, not only I guess in television, but I guess in comic books as well. But I also really liked when, uh, when I was growing up, we used to listen to the serialized radio n- dramas. Oh sure, yeah, yeah and or the the serialized mysteries and things like that. So I love I love the Bachelor franchise. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. With yeah. soap operas, I think reality is also effectively a soap opera, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so heightened reality. Yeah, a lot definitely. of like. Recurring characters in the Bachelor franchise as well. People, villains show back up to yeah. try to like find love. Uh, in Indian um, soap operas or or dramas, um, they'll actually start to name characters from like classical mythology, so they'll stand oh, yeah. in for that archetype. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's certain like names that mean like basically she's an even evil mother-in-law. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 or like yeah, put upon heroin is yeah, like, yeah, so yeah. and so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> The Spanish that I know, the, the extent to which I know it, is all derived from destinos. Destinos? Yeah, the, uh, yeah. The, 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 uh, the Spanish language learning soap opera, <laughs> which I recommend. I think it's all on YouTube for free. That's awesome. Um, I would say that my Hindi is pretty much limited to melodramatic pronouncements of love. <laughs> so I'm not exactly sure to, how to That's say, like, idea. where's the hospital? Oh, I think I can say where's the hospital, but I know how to say, like, sacrifice. <laughs> I think there's a Muslim practice where you sacrifice an animal and you give it out as um, as an offering. Um, so you uh, you butcher an animal and you give it the meat out to people who need it. Um, and so the practice okay. is called kurbani. Actually. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah.
But it also, but it's also like a, a Hindi movie from the seventies. Yes, to sacrifice themselves, and they're a very famous song. So, uh, okay, so I think that's it for episode eight yeah. of Rumor Requirement. Thank you very much for joining us. Before we go, we have to thank Kevin Carter. Yeah, for a wonderful theme song. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, thanks again, Kevin. And uh, see you guys next yeah. week or so. Yeah, and again, thanks for listening. Yep.